I genuinely, honestly believe there is no bigger problem in the world today. We're back to a state where we're debating reality and society can't function if there's no consensus. Welcome to Crawford Media. I'm Hal Crawford. Today, with the help of a man named Gotham Mishra, we're going to examine the news requirements of the entire world, then tackle the question of how we might meet those requirements. Gotham is the founder and CEO of Inkle, a new startup. The Inkle app, spelled I-N-K-L, aggregates news from hundreds of publishers all over the world, then presents that news to its subscribers in a custom interface. I've been using Inkle recently and I think it's a really good product. As you'll hear in this interview, the road has been long and hard for Inkle and its founder. I've known about Gotham for some time, but it was only when I read a staggering post by him that I knew I had to meet him and get him on the podcast. In the blog post, Gotham does a top-down analysis of how many newsrooms the world needs and how many subscribers it would take to finance those newsrooms. It turns out we're short around 950 million subs. Hi, I'm Gotham Mishra. I'm the founder and CEO of Inkle. Look, and I completely understand why most people working in the industry, media and music sectors don't tend to focus on kind of the global issue. You know, it's a very embattled industry. And when you're preoccupied dealing with urgent problems within the business, it's hard to take that other lens and sort of think about, well, what does this mean for news around the world? We tend to think about this problem slightly differently because we've designed Inkle from day one to be a global platform. And so we have readers today in every country except North Korea. So we spend a lot of our time thinking about this from a global perspective. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about this problem that as, is as yet unsolved is that we all, I think, agree that we want a pluralistic press. And let's take the leanest possible definition of pluralism and say that's three publications in a city. So you get three different views on news and current affairs. And what's really interesting is that if you start to think about how many newsrooms and how many journalists there need to be around the world to give you that minimum pluralistic view of the world, you end up at a number that is orders of magnitude greater than where we are today. By our assessment, there are roughly somewhere between 25 and 50 million people paying for news today in digital form. There are obviously people subscribing to print, uh, but that's slightly different. And, you know, the publishers are trying to bridge those print subscribers across to the digital world. But if you look at, you know, about two and a half billion people reading news online, what's very quickly apparent is that we're really maybe at two, even if you took a very generous assessment, you'd say maybe 5% of those readers are paying for news today. And this poses a conundrum for the industry because the alternative to consumers paying is obviously advertising revenue. And in the past, that advertising revenue has been able to sufficiently complement the consumer or subscription revenue. But if you look at the future and you say, well, 
it seems pretty clear that more and more of this ad revenue is going to flow to big tech platforms that are very data rich, people like Facebook and Google. Then you sort of form a view that most of the revenue for the industry for publishers has to come from consumers. And so what we had done in that blog post was we had said, well, if you look at the size of different cities around the world and you look at your mega cities, you look at your mid-sized cities and you look at your small towns and then you look at the more dispersed populations living outside those sort of urban areas and you try and map that to the size and scale of a newsroom that's required. Let's say in your mega cities, you need newsrooms of 500 people. In a smaller city, maybe you can get by with 100 to 200 people and sort of so on. You come up with a set of numbers that is frankly quite confronting. Based on our exercise, and this is also obviously as a top-down high-level exercise, it's quite dependent on the assumptions you make. But by our calculation, you need something like a billion people to be paying for news. And so if you compare that billion people to the 50 million that are paying for news today, you know, we're at 20th of the way there. And so it, that's really, I guess, you know, part of the problem that Inkle's trying to solve because what we're doing is we're thinking about, you know, the people who are not paying for news today and what's holding them back what's keeping them out of the paid news market and what we can do to try and bring those people into the paid news market while obviously making sure that we're not creating any conflict or confusion for the 50 million people who do pay for news today. Mm. And, and what is the conclusion about what is holding people back? There's a top-level answer to this and then we can dig a bit deeper because the reasons do vary by consumer segments. Um, but at the top level, one of the big challenges is that consumers are not buying really any product or service the way news is being sold today. Now, 20 years ago, if we take groceries as an example, 20 years ago, we might have been inclined to go to the bread store and the milk store and the meat store and the vegetable store. But today we all just go to a supermarket. We expect to get everything in one place. And the same sort of thing has happened online whether you're looking at e-commerce sites like Amazon or Etsy or eBay, or you're looking at media portals like Netflix and Spotify and Amazon, what we're finding is that consumers have been trained to expect the convenience of finding everything in one place. And the challenge for a lot of these customers is that the idea of going to six or seven different news websites and finding all that information and buying those subscriptions and managing those subscriptions, that's just completely at odds with how they are buying and consuming services today. Now, for the people who are really loyal to individual news brands, where those 50 million subscribers come from today, it still makes sense because they spend a predominant amount of their time on one or two news websites. There's a strong enough direct relationship there for them to buy those subscriptions. But if you start speaking to millennials or Gen Y even, and you find these younger users who've grown up without building that strong affinity or loyalty to an individual news brand, it's a very difficult proposition to get them or to convince them to go across different websites and buy different subscriptions. You know, they, they, they're used to paying for Netflix and Spotify and their immediate response is, well, I just want Netflix for news or Spotify for news. I want it all in one place. I want it personalized for me. I want it ad-free. I want a high-quality experience. I want to be use, able to use it on all my devices. You know? And so that, I think, is the big mismatch. 
when you dig deeper below that, there are other issues that come up as well. You know, there are concerns about subjectivity and bias in the news. There are concerns about fake news and misinformation on the big platforms like uh, Facebook and, you know, social media in particular. And then for the older readers, you know, there are concerns about the amount of clickbait and noise in the online news versus print. But I'd say at the macro level, you know, where we see an opportunity to bring a lot more people into the paid news market is by creating that Netflix type experience for news. And you mentioned Spotify and Netflix, but Spotify would be a better analog than Netflix really because, well, I mean, I'm just supposing here because Netflix actually suffers a lot of churn and and, and isn't a comprehensive video content offering. It's big, but it's not comprehensive. So explain to me Inkle's offering. Is is Inkle a comprehensive news offering? No, and I actually think for that reason, Netflix is a better example than Spotify because in the music universe, you're basically dealing with a closed catalog or a complete catalog of content. And what you eventually find is that all of these music services, you know, whether you're talking about Apple Music or Amazon Music or Spotify or Tidal or anyone, they're all essentially working with the same complete catalog of content. So what's different between them is how they present that content, the algorithms, the user experience, the discovery models, and so on. In streaming video, which I think is more like news, there is no comprehensive content catalog. You're essentially paying for different bundles of content and shows and programming with each platform. And that, I think, is a better analogy for Inkle because we don't aspire to be a comprehensive source. I mean, it's frankly, it's impossible to be a comprehensive source of news because we'd have to go out and do deals with literally hundreds of thousands of content partners. And it would be redundant because there would be a tremendous amount of duplication across those sources. So what's uh, key for us is to ensure that we don't have gaps in our coverage, that no matter what the story, you have at least two, three, maybe even five or six different perspectives on that story, because that's part of our proposition for the listener or for the reader. But, you know, we don't need to have every single news source. Our focus has always been on working with just the most credible, the most recognized, the most reliable news organizations, because in the information context, in particular, provenance and reliability are paramount, right? I can think of this as the difference between Netflix and YouTube, right? Where Netflix is very careful about curating and selecting the content it'll put in front of its subscribers, as opposed to YouTube, where anyone can publish anything. How many publishers have you got on board? We've got, I don't know what the latest count is, but it's well over 100 now. Is that um, product set focused on Australian publishers and then sort of spreading out through the world? Is that how it's gone? That's how we thought it was going to go. But I think what's happened with this product is that it has touched a nerve in multiple markets. So biggest markets today are actually the US and the UK. What we find is that it's the same set of issues that readers are facing in all of these places where you know, they're trying to get high quality news and information in the most efficient and quick way possible. And, you know, so it's really, I guess, up to us to make sure that we're showing the right stories, the most relevant content to those readers in different markets, but they all ultimately have the same requirement. 
And and it works as a flat fee, doesn't it? It's a flat monthly fee. Yes, that's correct. So it's 15 Aussie or 10 US a month. Right. And and how's it going? Are you growing subscribers? Yes, yes, we are. And in fact, you know, it's been really interesting because the platform grows even when we don't do anything. Even if we were to just leave it completely on its own and not market it, the service would still keep growing because I think of two things. One is what we're doing is actually quite unique and valuable in the new space. There's nobody else who's got the sort of brand partners that we do. You won't find the New York Times and Financial Times and Economist and Foreign Affairs, you know, the kind, this kind of content on any other news product. And then the second thing is where really doing everything in service of the reader, right? So when we think about our curation, for instance, our decisions on whether to show you certain articles are not based on whether they'll sell ads, whether they'll create virality, engagement, or any of those other sorts of metrics that, let's say, a tech platform might look at. And what that means is that we end up showing readers stories that they wouldn't see elsewhere. And so this combination of showing you news that you wouldn't see elsewhere and from brands that you respect and would want to read, that tends to be quite powerful. So the service is growing on its own. We've also just signed a partnership with Optus, which is very exciting. So Optus is now offering customers the ability to buy and manage their subscriptions through their billing relationship with Optus and where one of the subscription services they've partnered with. So yes, the service is growing and you know seems to be very well received, especially I'd say in the last 12 months as paywalls have got tighter and people's concerns about fake news on social media have grown. So it would seem that you have somewhat of a uh, conflict with publishers who are running their own paywalls, given that you, you're allowing them unfettered access within your own interface to their paywalled content. If you become very successful, are you concerned that those publishers would end their relationships with you? Gosh, no, no, not at all. Because the publishers know that there are different types of readers in the market, right? So the, I guess if you take a step back, there is no industry or product or service that you'd be able to find where after a point of maturity, the sellers are still only selling their product through one single channel, right? As every market matures, the sellers in that market realize that there are different sorts of customers in different segments out there, and they have to reach the market through different channels to try and get to those different types of customers. And so this was really the insight behind Inco, right? And so what we've done within the platform, in our marketing strategy, in our user experience, in our licensing terms, through every aspect of how we build this company, we've made sure that there is no cannibalization threat for the publishers, because frankly, the grand goal of convincing a billion people to pay, you know, that falls away if we end up cannibalizing the direct subscriptions. So one of the things that's been paramount for us from day one is making sure that there's a clear separation between what we can take to the market and what we can offer readers versus what publishers do. For example, we don't offer a complete catalog of content from a particular publisher, right? We're happy to offer a subset. And one of the things we say to publishers is keep what's unique on your own website. And typically what's unique tends to be opinion content. So if you have well-recognized columnists, that's the best source of unique content and value that you can provide to your readers. And that should only be available to people who pay you for it. 
But in addition to that, you know, there's a ton of other things that we do. For example, we don't recreate or replicate the publisher's experience on our own site. And that's really important because we're trying to make sure that we're not facilitating the same user behavior that someone would have on a publisher's website. We don't want them to do that on Inkle, right? So we're trying to appeal to a different segment of customers and with different user behaviors. And it's really important for us to make sure that there is that clear separation. Because ultimately, I think if the publishers lose that direct subscriber channel, there's nothing that Inkle or anybody else would be able to do to make up for that revenue, right? I mean, if you're getting $200 a year from subscriber, no platform outside the publishers is going to be able to match that. Well, you've been going since 2014, I think. Uh, is that correct? Yes. What's been the biggest obstacle to your growth in that time? What, what's the really hard thing that you do? I think there have been two things, right? So one is, I think our thesis was correct. Our timing was wrong because I started Inkle straight after setting up and running the online subscriptions for Fairfax. And so... I was working on the assumption that this issue around paywalls was going to start to become very apparent to users very quickly. But in reality, that's a consumer shift that's taken, I'd say, probably the better part of five to seven years to take effect. And it's only now in the last year or two that people are starting to say, okay, well, look, I'm not reading enough of any of these one sources to justify buying a subscription. So what's my solution? Right. If I'm someone who literally just wants to read five articles from the New York Times and five articles from the Sydney Morning Herald, how do I do that? And there needs to be a solution for that. And that hasn't happened until pretty recently. I think that was one challenge that we faced because, you know, we went to market and we explained what we built and people said that intellectually they got it, but it wasn't something that needed an urgent solution straight away. That's obviously changed now. The second thing is being based in Australia and as a media startup, access to venture capital has been incredibly difficult. We have some of the world's best engagement metrics, and we know this because we've been told as much by some of the world's best venture capital funds in, in the US. But to access those venture capital funds, they've also invariably said we need to relocate to America. And some of that is because of we're just in a contrarian sort of sector, right? Most VCs are putting money into sectors like AI and fintech and so on. And so we're an unusual investment. But the other problem is also, I think we're very contrarian by thesis. Most new startups in the last decade have sort of just followed the same free and ad-funded route to market. We've come into this space as a paid product that's completely ad-free. And there's not a lot of sort of examples. Like we're leading the the way here. So there's not a lot of other companies we can point to and say, we're just going to replicate what those guys have done. Yeah, it's it's it strikes me as surprising perhaps that there aren't more direct competitors for Inkle. When you and I were talking earlier before I hit record on this conversation, we talked about Blendle briefly, the Dutch startup that, that had yep. a somewhat different model. I think it was pay incrementally for articles and then move to a subscription. But Tell me, uh, Gotham, why don't you have more direct competitors? Well, I think a lot of it goes back to the issue we were discussing earlier about cannibalization, right? No publisher is going to work with you if you present a cannibalization threat. And this is a very hard problem to solve. You can't just solve this problem by waving a wand, right? Like for us to crack this problem, we literally invested years in analyzing 
consumer behavior and looking at eye-tracking studies of how people were navigating through content on publisher websites and interviewing readers of different segments and conducting surveys and reviewing research to really understand the consumer segments and the consumer behavior in enough detail that we could build a convincing solution for it, right? Because at the end of the day, if if you're going to cannibalize the publishers, they're not going to work with you. And so I'd say that's the first issue. The second issue is that even after you get the content, you're really still just at the starting gate because having the content is not enough. What you've ultimately got to do is figure out how you're going to use that content to solve a problem for the reader. And so the biggest, I guess, you know, challenge that a lot of other aggregators have faced in this space is that unless you get the user experience and your editorial strategy and your algorithms right, you're not creating enough value per reader to be able to pay for the content. And we've seen a number of startups try to come into this space. Some of them, frankly, I find they pursue a quite objectionable strategy where they start off by just stealing the content. But, you know, the ones that do license the content, we've seen a few of them, they haven't been able to make the unit economics work. You know, what they're getting from the customer in terms of conversion, retention, value per reader just doesn't stack up so that they can pay for the content. So I think those are both, you know, quite difficult problems to solve. Mm. And that's why no one else has done it as yet. Mm, mm. And I, I take it that your model is a revenue share model with those publishers. So we have a, a different licensing arrangement with every publisher. It depends on what the publisher is looking to do and what their internal calls and requirements are. But what I can say is that, you know, we don't, that we, we don't work with any publisher without an explicit license, right? So we never sort of steal, scrape, rip off content in every single instance. We're working with a publisher on a commercial basis that makes sense for them. Mm-hmm. And can you share with me how many subscribers you have? No, unfortunately, we don't share any information about commercial arrangements with publishers or our volume. Now, in solving this billion-person problem, what, what role does the government have? Should the government be directly subsidising commercial news media? I, I think there are things the government can certainly do to help commercial news organisations. I think you know taxation policy is one of those. I think certainly media rights, media freedom, defamation protection. I mean, these are pretty massive problems in Australia, and frankly. We have quite retrograde policies in several of these areas where, you know, the idea that a publisher could go out of business because of a frivolous lawsuit, you know, these are very problematic, right? So I'd say I would like to see the government focusing on solving those kinds of issues. I don't think expecting the government to hand out large sums of money is necessarily the way to solve this problem. I mean, obviously, if the government has the funds and is willing to invest in the sector, I think that would be helpful. But personally, I don't believe in the ability to sort of sustainably create those kinds of incentives over the long term. And we look at car manufacturing in Australia, right? And where it eventually ends up is the market forces sort of take over in the long term, right? So I think you've got to find a way for the industry to be sustainable on its own and be independent. But yeah, I think where there are opportunities to provide tax breaks for news organizations or for journalists or to address some of the sort of concerns that news organizations have, I think the government can be very helpful. Tell me about incremental payment business models. This is where you, where the reader could purchase an article at a time. There's a couple of startups now that are having another crack at this. What's your view on their chances of success? I think there are two 
challenges that they have to solve. One is the cannibalization issue. The idea that there is a segment of the population that you could convince to pay for individual pieces and extract some value as opposed to zero value, sure, conceptually makes sense. Practically, the idea of doing that on publishers' own websites is incredibly fraught. If you take Apple as an example, right? When you walk into an Apple store, you are going to get a certain experience and a certain range of products and a certain price, and you know all of that, and that's why you're in that Apple store. If you just want to occasionally look at a couple of Apple products and maybe be an Apple or occasional Apple product buyer, you can actually do that through Harvey Norman or JD Hi-Fi or even Amazon's website, right? But even if you recognize that there are some people who are going to walk into the Apple store and going to walk out without buying an Apple phone and eventually will go and buy a Samsung phone, even if you know this, and I'm sure Apple would know this, but it's not going to take the step of offering Samsung phones in an Apple store because it would be crazy to do so. And so the idea that you start to offer micropayments and all these sort of offshoot revenue models within a news publisher's website, which is their best prospect of converting someone to a paid subscriber, I think that's you know, slightly crazy. You know, it's one thing to do Inkle off-platform and we sort of by design built this off-platform because we said there needs to be a separation between the front door and the side door, right? You know, the front door has got to be where the publishers have their crack at getting those $200 a year subscribers. And maybe eventually in the long term, they get to a point where they say, you know, there's these complete no-hopers that they're never going to convert. And maybe for international readers where they know that subscriber intent is much lower, they can try that. But I would have thought that if you're on their platform, they're going to try and build a relationship with you. And they're going to build that relationship around newsletters and subscriptions and you know, the highest value stuff they can do rather than trying to sell you micropayments. So I think, I think that's one problem, right? And where, where this plays out for a lot of these platforms and providers is they just don't get traction on the publisher side. The second issue, I think, is arguably the bigger issue is the problem for the consumer. And one way to think about this is to visualize the consumer at the center of a network, okay? And let's call this an information network. And each node in this information network is a topic that the person needs to track. And if you look at this network over time, what you'll notice is that the number of nodes has been growing. The speed at which the information develops in each node has been growing. The connectivity and the complexity of the network and the connectivity of the nodes has been growing. So the amount of work that has to be done to gather and process information for an individual consumer has exploded. And so if on top of that, you now overlay the complexity and the inconvenience of individual purchase decisions, however small, um, that is not going to work for the end consumer because, mm. you know, whether you charge the end consumer one cent for an article or a dollar for an article, if you make it a purchase decision, you create cognitive load, right? So when you go to an e-commerce site, you don't go and buy the first thing you see. You browse the whole page and maybe in a session you come away with buying something, but more likely you might buy something once in every five sessions. If you contrast that with a news experience, with virtually every single news session, you expect to read at least one article, but ideally maybe two, three, four articles. So if you turn reading an article into a purchase decision, you turn your news website into an e-commerce store and your conversion in terms of the number of people clicking through to read articles is going to absolutely hit the floor. 
And that then creates a problem around, you know, the obviously the inconvenience and the frustration and the friction for the user, but for the publisher, it creates a problem around the value of the customer. And this is one of the challenges, by the way, that Blendle ran into, right? So, you know, Blendle had readers buying four or five articles a month. You just can't create a business with that little revenue, right? We, by contrast, have people reading 140 articles a month. And when someone's reading 140 articles a month, there's enough strength in the relationship that you can extract a subscription, you can kind of create a model around it. So I think those are the two big challenges. The only company that has successfully ever made a micropayment model work is Apple. And they did that with iTunes. And the way they did that with iTunes was by completely controlling the user interface. So they weren't run, running their micropayment model distributed or decentralized across other people's products. It was all within the iTunes app. And they did it by having a single universal micropayment price for all content. Every song costs the same. And what happened as a result of those two choices was that they removed the cognitive load of the purchase decision. Clicking on that button, the 99 cent button, essentially became just an access mechanism. It became a get button, if you, if you get what I mean. If you can do that, if you can create a single universal price for every piece of content, and you can create a completely consistent user experience across the entire internet, Maybe you can have a crack at it. But even then, I would argue that they, you will never completely eliminate the friction of having built a purchase funnel. Yeah, I really like that idea of looking at things in terms of cognitive load because in my experience of designing websites, that that's the biggest single thing that you need to consider, you know. Don't ask the user to do any work. Yeah, and, uh, you know, with, with Inkle, we when we launched, we had a plan where you could buy 100 articles for $10. And it actually worked quite well. We found that people were willing to sign up because when every article costs the same, you don't have to show a price next to every headline. We would take people to a paywall and we would say, what would you like to do? Would you like to buy 100 articles for 10 bucks? Would you like to buy a month's access for 15? Would you like to buy a year's access for 150? What we ultimately found was that there were enough people choosing the monthly or the yearly that it just didn't make sense to have three different plans. I'd say that's probably as close to frictionless micropayments as you can have, where you're, you're asking people to make the micropayment decision at the time of purchase, not at the time of consumption, right? When people are consuming the content, you need to get the hell out of their way, right? And just let them consume the content. And if you're, if you're putting a purchase funnel into that process, it's just not going to work. Gotham, tell me your story. You, you're I can tell that you're passionate about news. Sure, you yeah. thought deeply about the structural issues, which makes you atypical, as we discussed at the very beginning of this conversation. So how did you, how did you get into it? Oh, I'm a lifelong news tragic. I grew up in a communist state in India and remember having a conversation. One moment. Could, could, are you referring to the whole of India or an actual Indian state? No, an actual Indian state, state of West Bengal. I grew up in Calcutta, and the Communist Party of India had been running the state for oh gosh, well over twenty years at that point. And if the editor of the newspaper published a story that the Communist Party didn't like, well, the editor was replaced by three o'clock that afternoon. And so, I think you know, hearing my mum and dad talking about this sort of aroused my interest, and then I became the editor of my school paper. 
I don't know how influential this was in subsequent decisions, but I got a hall pass which said I could leave any class at any time on official newspaper business. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I used that privilege a fair bit. So I, after finishing school, I decided to go to the States to study journalism and got into a program with scholarship that I could afford because, you know, coming from India, U.S. schools were pretty expensive, but this one, you know, was, was affordable. And so I was there and studying journalism, but along the way, I got really interested in the internet and I learned how to code. And so my first job was actually as a computer programmer, but sort of the love for news was always there in the background. And then after working for a few years, I went to do my MBA at Wharton and then joined a management consultancy in New York that did a lot of work with news publishers. Shortly after that, I got married to an Australian girl, so we ended up down here. And it's only after we moved to Australia that I joined Fairfax Media. And that was probably 10 years after I left India to get into the world of journalism that you know, I actually joined the news industry. Mm, mm. Seven years you've been running Inkle. Yeah. And how would you characterize that? Seven tough years? Is it, is it a hard slog? Uh, yes. It's been, it's been very difficult. Probably only now getting to a point where I can even talk about it. It's been, yeah, it's been traumatic. <laughs> you know, we have on multiple occasions had no money in the bank and basically relied on the generosity of our staff to sort of agree to work for periods of time without a salary. I myself have worked for years without a salary. You know, we've been led down the garden path by a number of investors to the point where we're expecting a check and then they've kind of suddenly reversed course for some whimsical reason or the other. So it's been, yeah, it's been frankly very, very traumatic journey. But through it all, what's kept us going is two things, right? One is I genuinely, honestly believe there is no bigger problem in the world today because, you know, we're back to a state where we're debating reality and, you know, society can't function if there's no consensus. That's, that's the thing that makes us work together as a society. And you can't have that consensus if people don't trust the facts. And so I genuinely believe that whether you're talking about international conflict or climate change or income inequality or any, anything, it all starts with consensus and belief in reality and, and the facts. And so to me, you know, it's, worth, it's been worth the effort because I genuinely think this is the biggest problem. If you're going to be alive at this point in time, there is no bigger issue to try and tackle. And the other piece of this is you know, there, this is such a hard problem to solve that I, I, I think I'm uniquely privileged in that I have had the experience and, and the interest to be able to have a crack at it, right? Because I don't think this is a problem that you can just expect an 18-year-old out of Silicon Valley to come in and solve. You know, without really deep appreciation for what news is and why consumers use it and what makes publishers and editors and journalists tick, you know, without fully understanding channel conflict and cannibalization and every aspect of this, it, I'd say it's a devilishly hard problem to solve. Mm. So, so what's it going to take? What, what do you need? Do you need that cash injection for marketing? Do you need it to develop the product? How, how are you going to get the next level up for Inkle? Yeah, so we've got basically three growth strategies within the business. One is we've obviously just signed a partnership with Optus and we speak to a number of other organizations about similar partnerships. So that's obviously, you know, a very interesting way to grow the business. The second is, as I mentioned at the start, this product and this business grows 
even if we turn the lights off and leave it on its own. And one of the things we're looking at is how we can accelerate that. So for example, we know that people who read Inkle love it and love to tell others about Inkle. And so we're looking at incentive models and referral loops to try and take advantage of that and get more word of mouth growth. But ultimately, yes, it does take a marketing investment because we have to create brand awareness. And so that's one of the things we're looking at now saying, you know, how do we build brand awareness? Where do we buy ads? And, you know, it's a, it's a global play ultimately. So part of the challenge for us is also thinking about which markets to focus on. You know, Australia is an interesting market, but it's also a very small market. In the long term, I think the US is going to be our biggest market. But initially, for the next little while, I think you're going to see us focusing on the UK quite a bit as well. Mm. Mm. And so all of this obviously takes money. And, you know, that's why that's why we, we've actually just uh, raised a bit of funding and we're going to be raising money again probably sometime next year. Well, I really appreciate you talking to me today, Gotham. Thank you, Hal. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Well, quite a few hot takeaways there. How interesting that Gotham points out that having the content is not enough. News sellers have to diversify the channels they're selling through without hurting the subscription goose. There's also that assertion that young consumers are probably not building strong relationships with news brands. If that's true as Gotham thinks, it's got all sorts of implications for the future of subscriptions. And if it's too much to expect a strong personal relationship with the majority of your audience, how do you get money out of these people? In the micropayments world, this part of the audience are known as the never subscribers. For me, and also based on my experience as a news consumer, I keep coming back to the opportunity for an aggregation player, something like a super wrinkle. The best place people to make such a platform are the existing digital giants, for example, Google and Facebook. And I'm not sure that the world is ready for that kind of innovation right now. One day someone's gonna answer this conundrum and I'd certainly love to cover it here when they do. Bye for now.